Hello, and welcome to Skynet Today's Last Week in AI podcast, where you can hear AI researchers chat about what's going on with AI. As usual, in this episode, we'll provide summaries and discussion of some of last week's most interesting AI news. You can also check out our Last Week in AI newsletter, linked to at lastweekinai.com, for articles we didn't cover in this episode. Before we start, if you have any feedback or thoughts about our podcast, feel free to email us at contact at lastweekinai.com. We'd love to hear from you. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Sharon Joe. And I am your other host, Andre Krenkov. And this week, we'll be discussing a pretty good variety of things. We'll be talking about AI friends and the new Beatles documentary using machine learning. We'll talk about uh, multimodal uh, research that can uh, think about images and videos and stuff. Uh, we'll talk about weather prediction with deep learning uh, and some sad things with ethics, as usual, about crime prediction uh, being uh, bad for certain classes of people. And we'll wrap up by talking a bit about Tesla and their uh, autopilot work and a fun new robot. So let's go ahead and dive straight in with our stories about applications of AI and business news. Starting off with an article titled, Meet Your New AI Best Friend from Fortune. So this is a bit of an opinion slash overview article about how AI can essentially be part of our everyday lives and you know, more human, such as to interact with AI systems in a more seamless and engaging way. So I mentioned a few uh, existing efforts along this way, like Replica, which has uh, an AI companion that is basically like a friend. There's also uh, UniQ AI Advisor Service, which is uh, more for customer experiences, and also Hybrid, which uh, has apparently a virtual companion platform. Uh, yeah, so it's it's pretty good overview, uh, and it has a lot of also kind of thinking about the future, which is maybe I don't know less <laughs> less grounded in the present moment. Uh, what did you make of it, Sharon? Well, I thought it was interesting that it covered you know so many different types of AI companions, and um, I've been personally kind of looking into the space, getting curious and seeing, you know, what is, what is there and how is this really impacting people? And I think for some people, this is really helping with loneliness. Um, I, it does make me think of, you know, the movie Her a lot. Uh, and it also makes me think about what kind of future do we want to build? Do we want a future where, I, I think it's important for everyone to have a confidant, a personal confidant. And um, I, I do see a future where, you know, this can fill some of that space for people, uh, but I hope it doesn't deprive us even more of human connection, mm. um, which I think we've seen technology do time and time again now, especially with things like Facebook, it connects humans, but it deprives us of human connection. It's like really ironic in that sense. Mm -hmm. And I think here in the same vein, you know, it is providing a confidant, which I think helps significantly with loneliness, but hopefully this doesn't make it so we are incapable of social interaction or human connection. And it's just a supplementary thing. Um, yeah, so that's, those are my thoughts. Uh, I, I hope it doesn't take the dystopic route. <laughs> yeah, I, I quite doubt that that is possible. 
it seems to me that we are pretty much hardwired to, you know, uh, think differently about actual people, real people. So unless we get, you know, superhuman looking, you know, uh, videos, which maybe with deepfakes we will, but you'll never get that same feel as talking to someone in person. I do think these are sort of good examples of what you can do with sort of texting. Uh, so we text a lot and I think it, it's a lot more natural to interact with an AI via this text kind of um, format because then, you know, there's no body. It's kind of disembodied. And so you can imagine it to be more human than it is. But yeah, personally, I think it's likely to always just augment human interactions. Uh, but you never know. We could be heading for a dystopian future. None of us could expect. <laughs> well, I think there's definitely the case of... Well, I'm, I'm, I, I actually can see how a person who gets so much validation from this bot that they don't want to put in the work that it takes to sustain a human relationship. I could see that happening. Uh, and to me, that could be frightening because then maybe we won't be able to communicate well, but maybe then there's a future where each of us has a bot who then is used to communication. We will see. Um, I guess, yeah. It yeah, that's an interesting point. I think if you're like an introverted kid, you know, it's much easier to just, you know, talk to a computer than, and, and yeah, maybe it's, it's going to go the route of similar to present day technology. You know, your parents will need to limit your screen time. You know, as a teenager these days, you can easily just play video games all the time, you know, or just browse the internet and not, even right now, not make the effort to socialize uh, and just be distracted by all this stuff. So maybe it'll be similar to that, where it's going to be sort of maybe tempting as a way of distracting yourself. You know, instead of going to Reddit, we'll be talking to our AI friends on our smartphones uh, for a distraction, but, you know, hopefully just in, in the process of growing up, you'll learn that it's not the same thing. Right. And on to our next article, the Beatles get back used high tech machine learning to restore the audio. So on Disney plus uh, a three part documentary titled uh, the Beatles get back uh, the director, Peter Jackson um, actually produced uh, a higher quality um, uh, footage than and audio than was originally uh, there. And they used, you know, AI to do this um, essentially super resolution uh, to get better, you know, better instrumentals um, and yeah, using everything we got to, to make that significantly better um, so that this sound restoration sounds better than what um, we can otherwise uh, listen to. So the superpower denoising is super exciting to me. What are your thoughts, Andre? Yeah, this is very neat. Um, so to give some more background, basically there's all this archival footage of them in a recording uh, session and also doing a concert. You know, obviously there's albums where they had a studio to record in and, and that audio is good. But here, because it was this sort of more informal set of recording, uh, it, it's the, you know, film looks really grainy and desaturated and the audio is really muffled. 
and you know not balanced at all because it wasn't meant to be a good recording. And so yeah, they they both uh, improved the footage. You can you go from this really kind of desaturated, mostly green look to a video that looks modern, really, you know, full of color. And the audio, uh, yeah, especially they commented on how, you know, that was a bit of a process where they had to isolate every instrument, every vocal line, kind of this sort of um, uh, demixing of mono track here. And then they could then kind of uh, do the audio mixing or the audio engineering to combine it. And uh, yeah, I find this very exciting because it's one of the first very high profile productions that, you know, very strongly leaned on AI in terms of restoration and, you know, enabling this documentary. And I could definitely see this being done uh, many more times, especially with video restoration you know, uh, a lot of documentaries about the past that could benefit from it. Um, and also, uh, you know, we can imagine this becoming common in Hollywood for you know many reasons. Um, you know, for special effects, it's likely going to be a big deal. Uh, so it's interesting to see how machine learning is getting integrated into sort of a tool set of filmmakers. I also really liked in the article how they described in a very non-technical way what's going on. Um, so this is a, a quote. Um, uh, to me, the sound restoration is the most exciting thing. Uh, we made some huge breakthroughs in audio. We developed a machine learning system that we taught what a guitar sounds like, what a bass sounds like, what a voice sounds like. In fact, we taught the computer what John sounds like and what Paul sounds like. And I thought that was just a really good quote um, from Jackson, the director that, you know, captures exactly what the uh, machine learning model is doing with non-technical language um, and how it's like, oh, we can capture all these different components. And then, of course, we can capture this voice. And of course, then we can, um, yeah, essentially get get a upsampled, get a, get a clear version of it. Um, so I, I like that. I like the way of putting putting that. Mm. Yeah, for sure. And on to our research articles. Uh, the first one is titled Google, Cambridge University and Alan Turing Institute propose PolyVIT, a universal transformer for image, video and audio classification. And uh, this is an article uh, that's referring to the paper PolyVIT, co-training vision transformers on images, videos, and audio. Okay, so uh, the premise of this model is that it is a, uh, a vision transformer that is um, learning across several different modalities at once. So image, video, and audio. And um, Specifically, it is learning, uh, it's kind of a multitask model, uh, learning across different tasks. I think uh, Andre and I had a bit of discussion about this beforehand, um, <laughs> where we think, uh, well, the word co-training, they kind of uh, redefine, even though it is used in machine learning elsewhere, uh, specifically semi-supervised learning. Um, but it is, it's used differently here, and I think it largely means multiple tasks and multiple modalities um, from our, our look at it, it doesn't look like anything is like insanely different, but it is exciting to scale things across more modalities. 
Yeah, exactly. We were a bit confused <laughs> trying to understand what they meant by co-training when there's already terminology for this. It's also funny they say co-training vision transformers, given, yeah. you know, these are, um, you know, you're doing audio. So is that really a vision transformer? Um, I guess they treat it as an image, but still, um, yeah, this this is not that novel. They don't do too much that's interesting. They have this like sort of curriculum where they train uh, one task at a time with different modalities, and that's the main kind of interesting thing. We've already seen uh, before Perceiver IO, which yeah. is yeah, exactly uh, a transformer designed for different modalities. So as you say, I think it's not anything too surprising or new, but. They do achieve really good results uh, in their evaluation, and obviously it's it's getting scaled up. So it's, yeah, I think the main interesting thing about the paper is the results. And I could see, you know, there's not been too many prior papers that have done this uh, training where a single model can deal with multiple different modalities. Uh, there's really only one or two prior works that did that in the same sense as this does that. And it seems like it could be very useful for the future. Uh, very, one of their main points is, you know, as you train on multiple um, uh, modalities, you have a lot of benefits of efficiency and also kind of learning some patterns across the modalities, which obviously we as humans do as well. So it seems like this would be important if you want to actually get AI that, you know, can reason across modalities uh, in more than just images and text, which is mostly what is done. Uh, but yeah, otherwise, um, pretty, pretty um, exciting, really, just for showing that this sort of model can do well. And beyond that, we don't really have much <laughs> more to say. It is what it is. We got our second story from. Uh, fizz.org uh, on deep learning model speeds extreme weather predictions. So this is all about how researchers from the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory called Tech and NVIDIA trained this thing called the Fourier Neural Operator uh, deep learning model to basically uh, emulate atmospheric dynamics and provide high fidelity extreme weather predictions across the globe uh, full five days in advance. So yeah, this basically is, we did, couldn't find a paper associated with it. This seems like more of an applied uh, project. Uh, and uh, yeah, there are some interesting details here. So the researcher used decades of data from ERA-5, the European Center for Medium Range Weather Forecast High Resolution Earth data sets. And they scaled that up to 128 NVIDIA GPUs uh, with a new, uh, I guess, multi-cluster training from the National Energy Research Scientific Computing Center. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think this is necessarily mind-blowing as far as I can tell, but it's a cool case of, you know, applying research that has existed in practice and uh, showing how this uh, high uh, high intensity computing from the uh, National Energy Research Center is is being used in practice. 
I actually think that this is a pretty big uh, step in the right direction in terms of weather forecasting, um, where we can now use these deep models to do a lot more. It's impressive to get like an Earth emulator um, and emulate the entire Earth and get a sense of, you know, what's what exactly is going on. And, you know, it's predicting wind velocities and pressures um, at different atmospheric levels. Um uh, up to, you know, 120 hours in advance. That's quite a bit to be able to get, you know, a sense of, uh, what's going on and, and predict, you know, different like natural disasters and all sorts of things. Um, and also to get a better sense of how, um, uh, yeah, how to, how to route things, how to, how to manage all of that. Um, so I, I think it's, yeah, I think it's fantastic work. Uh, I'm very excited to see NVIDIA partner with, um, these types of uh, institutions uh, and to, to do work that is so important for um, for for the world and and for for the country I suppose here specifically um, mm-hmm. and I, I too would love 128 a100s which are the GPUs <laughs> being used um, you know I thought that was quite quite small given yeah. video has you know <laughs> I'm joking. I mean I guess it's small compared to all the GPT-3 stuff, but like, it's, it's still, it's a it's lot. quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's interesting. I also had a case study on the 2016 Hurricane Matthew, where they showed that the model's predictions of the hurricane's winds and where it went, uh, were within the NOAA National Hurricane Center's kind of forecast uncertainty. Uh, so it seems to you know work well in practice, not just in theory. And maybe also, I suppose it's interesting to note that this Fourier neural operator is something that has been looked at by multiple papers um, and for other purposes. So it's it's basically a particular model for solving partial differential equations instead of just having um, linear mapping or or yeah, sort of non-differential equation solvers. So that's exciting as well. We've seen a lot of work on using deep learning for um, dynamic systems, partial differential equations, and that is useful for a lot of stuff in science. And on to our society and ethics section. Our first article is how we determine crime prediction software disproportionately targeted low-income Black and Latino neighborhoods. All right, this is a, a long, long article, um, uh, but it's largely uh, around uh, PredPol, uh, which is uh, an amalgamation of the words predictive policing. Um, and uh, this is one of the most widely used uh, softwares that is trying to get a sense of, you know, local crime data and figure out predictions for where criminals will be next. Um, and uh, this article is about, you know, studying PredPol and whether or not there are, you know, what, what kind of issues, what kind of, um, and I, I think we know where this is going to go, uh, what kind of um, inherent biases PredPol might have picked up on and might be continuing to um, cause. Yeah, yeah. So this is really long because it details how this publication, the markup, actually did their own investigation using uh, some data that I think was kind of leaked. Uh, you know, they obt- obtained a trove of PredPol or crime prediction data 
that has never been released by Predpol. Uh, it was exposed on the open web <laughs> and they downloaded more than 7 million predictions. And so the, the defense here, obviously, this seems like it would be terrible where this is kind of predicting neighborhoods and like rough areas to send uh, police to patrol before anything has been reported. And um, even though like their, their defense is that the model doesn't incorporate race data, uh, but it's not surprising to think that, um, you know, if you just train the model to predict where crime will happen based on prior statistics, then it could just perpetuate the cycle where where the police has already been more uh, and, you know, has patrolled more and so on, that uh, will continue happening. And the short version is that they did find that, that there is uh, across 38 cities, uh, there's statistically a lot more predictions uh, that the algorithm uh, looks or uh, predicts areas where it's predominantly people of color or Latino residents uh, and, and much less areas with uh, white populations. Uh, and they went into quite a bit of detail about this. So definitely something to be concerned over. There is, of course, a bit of nuance here because to some extent statistically this holds uh, but uh, regardless um, even so you really need to be careful because uh, this could definitely be used to just you know be a feedback loop um yeah i think the overall message takeaway is that uh basically the ai won't be more saintly than humans It'll it'll probably be very similar to how officers are policing now um, or uh, basically reinforcing the, the patterns um, that, that we have now. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I think like, you know, there's I mean, this is just like the, the reality of like where AI right now is being used, which is very much trying to, you know, take away repetitive tasks, but as a result, you know, just really hone in on, Hey, I'm going to just do what you've been doing this whole time. Um, and, uh, that's, that's a problem when we want to improve in society. That's a problem when we want to, um, yeah, get better. And so hopefully I think there are ways for AI to help us. Um, it's just, I think it takes a little bit more effort to, to use it in that way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I guess one of the points to make here is even if it's, you know, accurate in some extent, so its predictions often fell disproportionately in places where the poorest residents live. And you can imagine probably socioeconomically, a lot of these areas with white people are more prosperous and there's probably less crime. But there are plenty of statistics saying that there's a lot of over-policing beyond what you know is merited by the proportions of crime in these areas. And as you said, you know, this is a, probably not going to change anything. Like in the best case, uh, it's just going to continue what is happening, or or could reinforce that. So, yeah, I think it, it's really nice to see this detailed investigation by the markup, and uh, it's a great example of journalism and the sort of things you would hope journalists do so if there's anything positive about that we can definitely say that <laughs> yeah 
And on to our next article, Inside Tesla, as Elon Musk pushed an unflinching vision for self-driving cars. All right, I want to say first and foremost that this was a little bit clickbaity because uh, I thought inside Tesla meant, you know, what's going on inside of Tesla and everything. It's actually just a summary of things externally, um, maybe a bit of stuff that people are guessing what's happening internally. Um, but there's not, I, I don't think there's much new information, but it is getting things, you know, uh, yeah. place. There's some quotes from uh, employees, uh, people who worked on a project over the last decade, but it's, it's not much. Most of it is just public yeah. things that we know. Yeah. So um, not surprisingly, the article is uh, discussing um, largely what's been uh, going on with the project and how it's been being pushed really hard uh, by Elon, um, including, you know, the naming of autopilot um, versus like a co-pilot type thing um, and how how this uh, is related to um, uh, the California Senate's like transportation committee um, and the DMV director and how like they are they're making sure and requesting answers to questions um, about about safety. Yeah, I think the main takeaway for me that wasn't sort of was a good assumption that wasn't necessarily clear or something I knew per se is that this article does make clear that uh, Elon Musk kind of was at the helm and kind of overrode other people's uh, preferences in some cases. So the naming of uh, the system in terms of autopilot and, and full self-driving, some of the decisions like only using cameras uh, was against the grain. And actually, interestingly, <laughs> there's people who worked on it who said that uh, Musk told members on multiple occasions that humans could drive with only two eyes, so cars should be able to drive just with cameras, uh, <laughs> which I don't think is very, very good reasoning. That's not, that's like quasi, you know, I'm a genius and this is some great insight, but it, there's many reasons why this is just sort of very surface level uh, thinking. And it does go into also some of the history that happened, for instance, this uh, accident crash in 2016, uh, where autopilot was on, uh, the cameras didn't detect a truck and it just you know hit it straight on. And uh, this Model S owner, Joshua Brown was killed uh, in Florida. And yeah, uh, it seemed like from what it says, there was a short meeting with the autopilot team and then briefly addressed the accident. So that also kind of speaks to me that maybe he sort of dismissed this a little more than was reasonable. Uh, uh, yeah, so not too much new, but I think it's a good overview. And this is the New York Times, so it's probably going to be revealing these details to many people who haven't known them. And also related to this, there's uh, another article from last week uh, on Tesla that is new information, which is alarmed by Tesla's public self-driving tests. State, state legislators demand answer from DMV. So it's all about how the chair of California's Senate Transportation Committee sent a letter to the DMV director, Steve Gordon, 
asking questions about uh, Tesla. Basically, what is your assessment of the FSD better trials? Is there danger? Uh, did it find that the program is unsafe? And how does VDME plan to address any potential concerns? So, you know, not a huge deal. It's just some questions. Uh, but um, it it is part of a trend of, you know, government officials scrutinizing Tesla a bit more uh, and, and does speak to, you know, this beta safety thing being a bit of a big deal. Yeah, I think um, it's also in light of YouTube videos of Tesla's not operating well um, in FSD. Uh, and uh, I think Tesla says, you know, like these are, we're not sure if these are real videos or not. Um, uh, I really want to say they're not real, except I personally have been in <laughs> a weird takeover situation. Um, yeah, when I was actually in a test drive when for a Tesla event. So it was around their office. So I, I don't know, that felt like a little bit awkward. I'm not going to lie. It started stopping in the middle of the intersection when the light turned yellow um, uh, or merged into the wrong lane. And so I, I think like these things still do happen. And um, I think, uh, you know, there are ways to safely roll this out. I think Cruz recently, you know, announced that they, they did a, full self-driving thing without, you know, human, uh, there, um, in San Francisco and it's, it's exciting. And I think we're going to get there. I think, um, yeah, but I think we need to be careful about it uh, and hopefully safety is, is taken very critically there. Yeah. And, and to add to that, I, I think we both know that the autopilot team at Tesla is, you know, world-class. We have many, 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 super intelligent and generally just, you know, fantastic people, many of them from Stanford. So the technology itself is impressive for sure. It, it's more about we have these questions to be asked of how do you label it? How do you convey to people its limits? Uh, how do you roll it out? Where I think it's been definitely more questionable. And on to our fun news articles uh, to end with. Um, the first one is a quadruped humanoid robot might be able to do it all. All right, so that is definitely clickbait. Um, <laughs> well, might is very, very important in that statement. But first, you should go check out what the humanoid robot looks like. I think humanoid might also be a little bit upset. <laughs> it has two legs and two arms, you yes, know. It is legged. It's a legged <laughs> robot. So let's put it uh -huh. real legged specifically. Um, and I think the goal is, uh, so this is uh, coming from the ETH Zurich's uh, robotics systems lab. Uh, and um and the goal is is to get it to be able to do a large variety of tasks, um, including, you know, mapping, inspection, logistics. Uh, uh, but right now, um, specifically, it's, you know, trying to be better and better at small freight logistics systems. So, like, it's trying to, you know, go over obstacles like steps and stairs more easily and uh, while carrying heavy payloads. Um, both indoors and outdoors. Um, these all sound like really simple things, but these are actually quite challenging for robots. Um, so uh, I, I love the part where they said, 
it can already efficiently overcome flat terrains. Which is dying right now. <laughs> I'm literally uh, dying like this. I don't know what that even means. Yeah, that's a good question. These uh, wheels work. Well, I guess a good, the point is, you know, and why the article says do it all. I think the implication is meant to be, just to describe this robot, It it is... It has, you know, it, it's sort of like a car where if a car could, you know, the wheels were attached to basically uh, arms and legs and it could stand up on its two back wheels. So it's kind of weird looking where, yeah, it has these arms with wheels on the back and front and then it can change from standing and walking and holding something to driving like a car to walking like a dog, uh, you know, like we've seen with uh, Boston Dynamics stuff. And that is probably helpful for being able to adapt to different things. Uh, and uh, this, this lab, the robot uh, systems lab has done a lot of research on sort of a mechanical aspect of how do you uh, make robots be able to explore. So it's it's fun looking, <laughs> certainly a different kind of robot. Uh, it's being commercialized by this company, Swiss Mile, and certainly it's early on, but it is an interesting, you know, take on robotics. Um, it's different from anything I've seen. <laughs> Great. I would love to hear your hot take. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, no, it's, it's cool, you know. Uh, I think it, it has certainly some benefits and, and some uses where this mix of being able to walk and drive and walk on all four um, could be enabling you to do things that you cannot do. And also, overcome flat terrains. I think that's comparing to uh, humanoid robots that walk on two feet because that's still hard <laughs> very slow. So, you know. Anyway, you know, maybe overpromising, but still, still certainly neat. And on to our last article from NVIDIA, Forging New Pathways, Boys and Girls Clubs, Teens Take AI from Idea to Application. And this is about a program from the Boys and Girls Clubs at Hudson County uh, taking part in the AI Pathways Institute program where they spend three weeks brainstorming, coding, and uh, dealing with these little spinning robots while using NVIDIA uh, developer kits and Jetson robotic toolkits. Uh, and they, you know, explored a bunch of basically different ideas of what you could do with AI and yeah, kind of got first-hand experiences working on AI. And these are, you know, 16-year-olds, high school students, you know. So, yeah, it's, it's really neat always when you have these sorts of programs where people are able to learn in a hands-on way. I know I really enjoyed doing robotics in our robotics club in high school. So I, I really liked seeing this from NVIDIA. I loved one of the students' uh, quotes, a 16-year-old said, uh, AI is used in so many objects and ideas that I didn't think of before. It's not just in robotics. It's not just in robots, but other areas like healthcare and the environment, all of which will expand even more in the future. And to me, that really captures the essence of something like this, which 
is saying like, it's not just applications that are cool, but applications that are impactful. And I think that it, it, different people are motivated by different things. You know, some people want really cool tech and some people want, you know, impactful, impactful tech, like see it actually out in the world and, and impacting people. And of course we're all a blend of, of that. I feel like I'm a blend of that. Um, but hearing that, you know, that, that quote, it's, uh, it's really meaningful because it means more, I think more kids will get into it. And also hopefully the next generation will build things that will be positive for the future since they care so much. Um, but it also speaks to kind of opening up the horizon of viewing, viewing what is AI. AI is not just for people who think like robots are cool. AI is also maybe for me who wants to, you know, affect the environment um, positively and help with climate change or something like that. And so I think this program, um, based on the testimonials, I'm, I'm very impressed uh, where, where it's gone. Yeah, yeah. It also it's noted that it culminated in a presentation in which the students explained how they programmed the NVIDIA Jetsons that responded to sort of practical issues. And it's not just robotics. They, I think, had hands-on experience, but it seemed like they did uh, a bunch of different stuff. Like uh, there was a project, Forget Me Not, which employed AI to help elders and Alzheimer's patients by alerting them about tasks and appointments uh, and, and various things. And yeah, there's even more quotes here uh, from the same person uh, when, you know, when brainstorming for this project, I thought about what I struggled with myself. And also these projects made me think about real life situations that people are dealing with. Um, and uh, yeah, I love taking it one step further by incorporating the AI aspects and, and seeing the impact that AI can have in solving these problems. So yeah, really cool to hear these first-hand experiences. And it's noted that uh, there's plans to produce a program. So yeah, just just nice to read about this. And I, I would hope that people in high school students could, could have access to these sort of things because they're very impactful. I agree. <laughs> And so that's it from us. And before we go, please let us know any thoughts you have directly to our email contact at lastweekinai.com. We'd love your feedback. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Scanda Today's Last Week in AI podcast. You can find articles we discussed here today and subscribe to our weekly newsletter with similar ones at lastweekin.ai. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and please do leave us a rating and a review if you like the show, ideally a five star review. But, you know, if you for some reason listen to the very end and don't like us, you can go lower. <laughs> uh, but be, be sure to tune in next week and edit your review if it ever changes. <laughs> <laughs> Give us a chance. Um, Give us right. a chance. You're trying here. Oh, we're trying. We really are. Well, see you until next week. <laughs>